We turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, and we're going to begin reading from verse 22 to verse 28. We'll be focusing on 23 to 28, but we'll start reading from verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with those rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands with, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. In our study of this passage last week, we were considering the nature of Christ's death. And against the backdrop of persecutions which the Hebrew Christians were facing at that time, and based on the tenor of this passage in which the writer speaks at length on the death of Christ, it appears that his readers were inclined to turn from Christ not only because they were being persecuted by their fellow Jews, but even more so because the death of Christ, as you know, was scandalous in Jewish thought. Paul says in Romans he says, for Greeks seek after wisdom and Jews after a sign, but we preach Christ crucified to the Greeks foolishness and to the Jews a stumbling block. And so the writer takes time out to dwell at length on the significance of the death of the Lord Jesus. We considered from this passage that the death of Christ was sacrificial. Verses 14, 23, 26, and 28. Secondly, the death of Christ was redemptive, verses 12 and 15. In verse 15, the deep part of verse 15, Paul, or rather the writer says there that a death has occurred that redeems from transgressions. Thirdly, the death of Christ ratified his mediatorial authority. We see that in verse 15a. We won't take time out to explain all that once again. 
Fourthly, the death of Christ was an absolute necessity. The death of Christ was no tragedy, it was no accident, it was all in the plan of God. His death was necessary, first of all, because in his mediatorial capacity, he had to fulfill the role, the function of a testator. We see that in verses 16 and 17, Christ, as it were, had willed that his people should be forgiven of their sins, and the word of God says there that a will does not take into, come into effect until the testator has died. Well, Jesus died, and that confirmed the promise of forgiveness. His death was a necessity because he had to fulfill the function of a testator. The death of Christ was an absolute necessity because just as the establishment of the first covenant required the shedding of blood, the shedding of blood was most crucial to the establishment of the second covenant by our Lord Jesus Christ. And this brings us this morning to the third respect in which the death of Christ was an absolute necessity. So what we have here is a sub-point of that last point we were on last week, the last sub-point of that point, which is the death of Christ was an absolute necessity for the purification of the heavenly sanctuary. The death of Christ was absolutely necessary for the purification of the heavenly sanctuary. We see that in verse 23, and arguing from the lesser to the greater, the writer presents his case as follows. He says there, beginning at verse 19, For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Simply put, what the writer is saying here is that if under the Mosaic Covenant it was necessary to cleanse with blood the earthly sanctuary and its furnishings with the blood of bulls and goats, and mark you, the earthly sanctuary was but a symbol of the heavenly sanctuary, that it becomes even more necessary for the heavenly sanctuary to be purified with what he calls better sacrifices than those of the blood of animals. The real sanctuary in heaven, he's saying, had to be cleansed by blood. In much the same way that the earthly sanctuary, a mere symbol of the heavenly sanctuary, needed to be purified by blood. Only that the heavenly sanctuary, of course, had to be purified with better sacrifices than those that were used to purify the earthly sanctuary. The better Sacrifices, of course, refers to the sacrifice of Christ himself. And the question some would ask, no doubt, it's a reasonable question, why is Christ's sacrifice referred to in the plural, particularly 
when we think of Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 27, which states that he offered up himself once for all. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, he was offered once to bear the sins of many. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, he was offered he offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. The question is, how is it then that the writer alludes to the atoning work of Christ in the plural as quote-unquote better sacrifices? And that's a very good question, the answer to which is this. He does so because he's using a Hebraistic figure of speech known as the plural of majesty. In the Hebrew way of thinking, the pluralization of a word makes it emphatic. It's like Psalm 1, which speaks of the blessedness of the happy man. The word is in the plural, all oh, the blessednesses of the happy man. In other words, the plural of majesty intensifies the significance or importance of a thing. So here, what the writer is doing, the writer, by pluralizing Christ's sacrifice, referring it to it as better sacrifices, is underscoring in the most emphatic terms the superiority, the sufficiency, the finality of Christ's sacrificial atoning work in respect of sin. Thus, it was necessary, the writer says, for copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And in this regard, he implicitly alludes to the necessity of Jesus' death. If the heavenly sanctuary needed to be purified with blood, then obviously the only person who was qualified for that undertaking was the Lord Jesus, and he by his death had to shed his blood, whereby the heavenly things, the heavenly sanctuary could be cleansed. Now this idea... Uh, that the heavenly places need to be purified, deserves some comment. The heavenly things, the heavenly places need to be purified. That really sounds strange in our ears. And the question is, how do we explain this need for the heavenly sanctuary, what the writer refers to as the heavenly things, to be purified? What do we, how do we explain the purification of the heavenly sanctuary, especially when we consider the fact that heaven, the place where God resides, is a holy place. Heaven is a holy place, such that we are told in the final book, the book of Revelation, that no unclean thing shall enter Therefore, outside are dogs, sorcerers, and so on and so forth. And understandably, this has been a great puzzle to Bible commentators such that various suggestions, various ideas have been put forward as to what is meant by the purification of the heavenly things. One suggestion is that the heavenly realm was in need of cleansing because of the defiling effects of sin. And the idea here is that sin was so far-reaching in its effect impacting not only the earthly realm, but the heavenly realm. And behind this position, those who argue for this position will cite 
the, the, the rebellion, the ultimate expulsion of Satan from heaven, you know, based on Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 21. Jesus alludes to it in Luke chapter 10, verse 18. Also, John chapter 12, verse 31. Now is the prince of this world cast out. Revelation 12, verses 2 and 9, 2 through 9, the casting of Satan from heaven. Some suggest that the heavenly sanctuary was in need of cleansing because of the rebellion of Satan and his host that took place there. A second suggestion which seeks to explain the purification of the heavenly realm is that the verb purified in verse 23 is used as a synonym for the verb inaugurated that is found in verse 18. So that whereas the first covenant was inaugurated but with blood being sprinkled on the mosaic tabernacle, the second covenant, that which was of Christ, the Christ the mediator, is inaugurated with a sacrifice of blood just as the first covenant was, sacri- was, was inaugurated with blood. Now, a third explanation of the purification of the heavenly things is that what is in view is the church as the temple of God, as the holy temple of God, which needs to be cleansed. And then a fourth line of interpretation related to the purification of the temple, the heavenly temple, that is, sees the heavenly things, the heavenly sanctuary, as a figurative reference to the conscience which was cleansed by the sacrifice of Christ's blood, verses 11 through 40. Now, there, so we have there four suggestions. What are we to make of these suggestions? Well, let's look at each in turn. The argument that the purification of the heavenly things with the sacrifice of Christ is to be understood as the inauguration rite doesn't seem to hold as there's no clue in this passage that that's the writer's intended meaning. That the heavenly things is a reference to the church as a temple of God which needs to be cleansed is a purely subjective speculation. The problem is that nowhere in this epistle of Hebrews we have the suggestion of the church being the temple of God. Yes, that is taught elsewhere, but to read that here in this passage is to actually read into the writer's intended meaning. Now the suggestion that the heavenly things is a reference to the need for cleansing of the temple because of the sin of Satan and his host is very interesting. And I will not draw any dogmatic conclusions here, but I'll point you to some of the supporting arguments for this position. Some cite Job 15 and verse 15, in which the writer says there, the heavens are not pure in his sight. And they see that reference as referring to the first act of sin in heaven committed by Satan, according to Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, and the fact that he still has access into the presence of God as the accuser of the brethren, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. In this debate, attention is drawn to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 
20, which speaks of Christ who, through his atoning work on the cross, the Bible says there, he, he, he died so that he might reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth. We get the idea there, then, that the death of Christ had not only earthly significance, but it had cosmic implications. It was far-reaching in terms of its application, based on Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20. A closely related interpretation, and one which I find to be most compelling, and which I would settle at, is this one. It is that of Homer Kent, the commentator Homer Kent, and Homer Kent says this, quote, just as the furniture in the tabernacle needed cleansing, not because of itself, but because it was the place where sinners were restored to God's presence, so the heavenly realities consisting of God's righteous presence needed cleansing, not because of sin in heaven, but because sinful men need to be reconciled to God's offended Righteousness. In other words, just as the earthly sanctuary needed purification, not because the furniture was inherently unclean, but because it was the place where sin was atoned for, the heavenly sanctuary, by a similar token, was in need of purification as it was there that the sin problem was ultimately settled. So in other words, because Jesus is Jesus going there, as it were, presenting the blood that was shed, the blood that is now in heaven. The Bible talks about that in, in the book of Hebrews. He appears before God, and his, work, his death has atoning significance. Therefore, by his blood, the heavenly sanctuary is purged, is purified. The death of Christ, then, was sacrificial. It was redemptive. It was ratified, or rather it ratified his mediatorial authority, the death of Christ was an absolute necessity. And then here's the fifth point this morning. The death of Christ was a priestly undertaking. The death of Christ was a priestly undertaking. Note verses 24 to 28 in which the author uses images from the Old Testament priesthood to interpret Christ's death. In verses 26 and 28, he portrays Christ as presenting a sacrifice, an offering for sin. In verses 24 and 25, he suggests that the death of Christ signaled his high priestly entry not into the most holy place of a physically constructed sanctuary, but into heaven itself. Christ did not enter into the holy places of an earthly sanctuary, and this by design. The writer actually answers that for us, the question as to why Christ did not enter the heavenly sanctuary, the earthly sanctuary. Based on Hebrews chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, he was from the tribe of Judah. And all the descendants from the tribe of Judah, from the tribe of Levi rather, could serve in the earthly sanctuary. 
But really, there was no need for Christ to enter and minister into the earthly sanctuary for the simple reason that the earthly sanctuary, the writer says, was only a copy, was only a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary. And the fact was that way superior to the priest, the Aaronic priest, the priest of the old covenant, he entered heaven itself. In other words, he entered far better, that which was far better than any earthly sanctuary. And having entered heaven itself, he, verse 24, tells us, now appears in the presence of God on our behalf. And there in the presence of God on our behalf, he needs no cloud of incense to veil the holy majestic presence of God, lest he should die, just as the Aaronic priest had to, the high priest, when he entered the most holy place, he had to, you know, the place, the Bible tells us, was filled with smoke, In other words, the presence of God was so holy, he could not see the naked holiness of God, lest he should be struck dead. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on entering the holy place, entered what we would call the unmediated presence of the holy God. In fact, the word of God teaches that he... That is that the fact that he's in the immediate presence of God there in heaven. We see in Hebrews chapter one verse three that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Now the question is: In what capacity does he appear in the presence of God on our behalf? Let me suggest to you: First of all, he appears in the presence of God on our behalf as our atoning, redeeming sacrifice. Going back to verses 11 and 12, we read, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and cows, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So he appears in the presence of God, first of all, as our atoning, redeeming sacrifice. And then secondly, he appears in the presence of God as our advocate, as our intercessor. Who is to condemn? Paul asked in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. When we stop to think of it, if we ask ourselves a question, what is the significance of Christ's ministry in heaven? Why is he there in the presence of God right now on our behalf? He's there on our behalf, first of all, as our atoning, redeeming sacrifice, the one who died for our sins. And he's there as our intercessor, as the one who mediates for us, compare this with Hebrews chapter 7, 25, 26. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that he, we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. 
Earlier we saw in our studies that he's gone there, he's in the presence of God as our forerunner, as a token of the fact that we also will be there someday with him in heaven. He's there right now interceding for us in the presence of God and how you and I continually are in need of his interceding, advocating work on our behalf. Because the fact is, even though saved, even though redeemed by the grace of God, we are still prone to sin. We do sin. We do fall. We still are in need of the cleansing grace of God. We still are in need of God's keeping saving power. And that's what our Lord Jesus is doing there in heaven for us. He's there as our intercessor before the throne of God. And what with all our sins, what with all our defilements, what with the fact that Satan, the accuser of the brethren, stands constantly day and night accusing us before the throne of God, we need an advocate to intercede for us. That's where our Lord Jesus comes. John is writing and he says in 1 John 2 verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you do not sin. And if any man should sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And on what basis does he make advocacy for us? On what basis does he intercede for us? No, he does not plead our innocence. No, he does not plead the fact that God needs to be merciful for us because we are so weak, we are so terrible. No, he pleads the merits of his precious blood. And so the death of Christ was a priestly undertaking. Sixthly, the death of Christ, we learn from this passage, was thoroughly efficacious. And by that we mean that his death fully accomplished what no amount of animal sacrifices could have ever accomplished. As we saw last week, verses 9, 13, and 14, whereas the blood of uh, of animal sacrifices ceremonially cleansed the body, they could not, they could not cleanse the conscience. They addressed simply the externals. They could not get into the interior of our hearts, of our minds, of our conscience. The blood of Christ did that. In verses 25 and 26, we see some further respects in which the death of our Lord Jesus was most effective. First of all, the death of Christ was thoroughly efficacious in that it represented his one and only sacrifice for sin. Note verses 25 and 26a, regarding the finality and sufficiency of his death for taking care of the sin problem, we are told that it was, verse 25, it was not to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood on his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. 
And the fact that he did not have to suffer many times over, the writer continues to argue in verse 26. The B part of verse 26 was evidenced by the fact that in the execution of his atoning work, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages. Once for all at the end of the ages. That's a reference to the cross. That historic, decisive event of Calvary where on the cross he suffered, he bled, he died for the sins of the world. He appeared once. To further highlight the single, non-repetitive nature of Christ's atoning work, the author in verses 27-28 likens it to the one-time occurrence of physical death. He then notes that whereas death will be followed by man's appearance before God in judgment, Christ's once for all offering of himself by his atoning death will issue in his appearing a second time, not to be the sacrifice for sin, but to be the savior of his redeemed. He'll be coming back not to deal with sin, but to deliver his saints. Described at the end of verse 28 as those who are eagerly awaiting, who are eagerly waiting for him. We read in verses 27, 28, and just as it appointed for man wants to die, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. So first of all, the death of Christ was thoroughly efficacious in that it represented his single and only sacrifice for sin. He did not have to, like those priests of old, every day stand in the sanctuary ministering, offering up sacrifices for the people. He did not have to, like the high priest, enter every year into the Holy of Holies with blood not his own. He, rather, appeared once... And one sacrifice, by one sacrifice, he sanctified forever those his redeemed. So the death of Christ was thoroughly efficacious in that it represented his single and only sacrifice for sin. Second, the death of Christ was thoroughly efficacious in that it marked the complete and thorough removal of sin. His death was thoroughly efficacious, it was thoroughly effective in that it marked the complete and thorough removal of sin. We read there in the B part of verse 26 that as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And this was indeed the grand and ultimate purpose for which he came into this world. If you ask the question, why did Jesus come into this world? Why was he made incarnate? Why did he go through all the sufferings, the trials, the scoffings, the mockings of this world? It was this, so that he might put away sin. You see, under the old covenant, animal sacrifices for sin did not remove sin. It merely covered sin. 
And if you remember my saying last week, even the very word, the Hebrew word for atonement means to cover, to cover. What those sacrifices did, beloved, was, was this. Those sacrifices did not take away sin, did not put away sin. Those sacrifices merely covered sin. But then with the appearance of Jesus, he by the sacrifice of himself, he by the sacrifice of his own person, the word of God says, put away sin. What is meant by putting away sin? What is meant by Christ putting away sin? It means that he takes it out of the way such that it no longer distances us from God. Somebody might say, well, but sin is still a reality. Sin is still with us. How then is it that Christ put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, by dying? Well, here's a regard in which he put away sin. He put it away in the sense that it no longer distances us from him. He puts it away such that it no longer stands as the source of our guilt and condemnation before the holy and righteous God of heaven. That's what is meant by his putting away sin by his sacrificial atoning death. Now here's the point. Sin, in practical terms, as you and I live from day to day, is a reality with which we wrestle. But here's the good news. There is coming a day when, praise God, at the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is going to put it away for good. In other words, the very presence of sin will no longer be with us. Right now, we have been saved, as we were saying this morning. We put away from us the penalty of sin. Right now, constantly every day, he is putting away the power of sin. But praise God, there is coming a day at his return when he's going to finally, definitively put away the very presence of sin. Now, actually, the Greek word that's used here in Hebrews 9.26 in connection with Christ putting away sin is the same word that's found in Hebrews 7 and verse 18, which speaks of the annulment or setting aside of the law on account of its weakness. The word carries the idea of invalidating something, of rendering it null and void. So what is the writer saying here in verse 26 when he says, Christ appeared once for all to put away sin? The idea here, beloved, is this. That he invalidated that huge debt of sin for which we were responsible and which we could never have paid. What did he do when he appeared once for all at the end of the ages by the sacrifice of himself? He annulled that debt. He canceled that debt. He wrote that debt off completely. How so? By virtue of his having fully paid for them on the cross. That's why when he died, you remember that word he uttered when he died? It is finished. What was the significance of those words? In other words, man's redemption has been paid for, is complete, has been finished. Over. Done. 
That's what he was saying. Tetelestai, it is finished. So the death of Jesus doesn't just cover sin. It cancels sin. It removes sin entirely. That's what is meant by his putting away sin, which means that our sins are completely forgiven. Completely. And scripture illustrates in various ways how God thoroughly puts away sin. In fact, if you go back to Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, there were all kinds of ceremonies going on that day. And we are told in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 20, that at the end of making atonement for the holy places and the tent of meeting and the altar, that the live goat was presented. One of those goats for the people was slain, but one was kept alive. And here's what they did with that goat that was kept alive. Leviticus 16, verse 21, And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. You notice there the language, putting away. He sent away that goat into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat... Verse 22, shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. That's exactly a picture of what our Lord Jesus did when he put away sin. That scapegoat, that goat referred to as a scapegoat, the goat that was sent away with, as it were, the sins of the people laid on it, is a picture of Christ bearing our sins. Beloved, when Christ died on the cross that day, he bore our sins away. He became our scapegoat. He took our sins upon himself. And by his death, those sins have been put away. Put away for good. We have another picture of what happens when God puts away our sins. Micah chapter 7 verse 19. The prophet Micah portrays God's putting away sin not only in terms of his treading it underfoot, but in terms of his casting it into the depths of the sea. Here's how God deals with our sins. Micah pictures it as God just stomping all over it. And then casting it in the depth of the sea. In other words, never to be remembered anymore. Isaiah 38 verse 17, he cast our sins behind his back. In Psalm 103 verse 12, the psalmist declares, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's how God puts away sin. And that's what gives you and me the assurance, my friends, that when we anchor faith and trust in Jesus Christ, even when Satan is roaring and accusing us, even when conscience is accusing us, we stand assured in the forgiving grace of God, knowing 
for sure that when we confess to him and when we trust Christ our Savior, our sins are gone. That is, the penalty is gone. And so in the line of argument the writer presents in this passage concerning the death of Christ, the significance of Christ's death, the necessity of Christ's death. Remember the context we said? It was a context of persecution. These Christians were on the verge of turning back to Judaism. They were under persecution. And among other things, they were becoming disenchanted with the idea of a crucified Christ, Christ dying. And the writer is saying here, look, just as your sins were taken care of in the, under the old covenant by the shedding of blood. Listen, there's a new covenant. And this covenant requires the shedding of blood. God will not have any longer the sacrifice of bulls and goats. He will have the sacrifice of his lamb, the lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with this line of argument the writer is presenting in this passage, it's as though he's inquiring of his struggling, indecisive readers who are inclined to draw back from the Lord Jesus, who are inclined to go back to Judaism, to the rituals and institutions of the Mosaic Covenant. He's saying to them, as it were, why in the world would you want to turn away from the great high priest who ministers in the true sanctuary in heaven and return to the old covenant priests who serve in an earthly tabernacle, an earthly sanctuary, which is only a copy of the true heavenly sanctuary. He's asking them, as it were, why give up the substance for the shadow? Why not stick to Christ, the great high priest, and sacrifice the only one who provides eternal redemption? First, as we close this morning, the good news is that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, suffered. He died on the cross, not as a tragedy, not as an accident, not as a mistake, not as a martyr. He died, and his death was of such that on account of his death, he took away the sins of the world. That's the gospel. In his crucified body, he once and for all bore them all away and never to die again, never to die again, never to pay for sins again. He ever lives to make intercession for those who come to God by him. Have you come to him? What all of this means, my friends, is that there is no other savior. There is no other sacrifice. There is no other solution for the problem of sin other than the Lord Jesus Christ, whom to know is life eternal and reconciling peace and favor with God. Do you know him? Have you trusted him as your Savior and as your Lord?